song. That is so good. It just kind of makes you ready to go. It's good to have you here this morning, even after this series is done. I think we had to start every sermon with that song. It's just a lot of fun. Hey, welcome here in Bellingham. Those of you in Skagit, thanks for joining us today with Pastor Brian and the gang there. Those at Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton, glad that you're with us. And if you're with us on the live stream, so thankful to have you join us this weekend. And many of you are joining on the brand new Cornwall Church app on the live stream. So it's good to have you uh, using that app. If you haven't downloaded that yet, you might want to do that. It's free and it's awesome. Uh, this is week three of our series called Camino de Iglesia, the way of the church. We're looking at this way that God has called us to a lifestyle of transformation, and it's based on this uh, Camino de Santiago, this ancient pilgrimage that my wife and I took, uh, 500 miles across Spain, and I was thinking that we might sing that song by the Proclaimers, I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more, but there's a line in there that says, and when I haver, and I'm not sure what haver means, so I didn't think it'd be wise for us to sing when I haver if we don't know what that is, so we're not going to sing it. And, and, and some of you don't even know what song I'm talking about. Some of you are so old. Um, <laughs> then let me, let me speak to your generation. Maybe you remember Peter, Paul, and Mary. They sang, you know, 500 miles, uh, so far away from home. So I guess it's probably a protest song. You, you remember the song, Lord, I'm one, Lord, I'm two. You, anyone at all, Peter, Paul, and Mary, remember that? I'm 500 miles away from home. We're not singing that one either. So... <laughs> But this Camino de Santiago is this, this ancient pilgrimage, this ancient pathway, and we're taking some of the things, the insights that, that, that I saw on that, and connecting them with the timeless truths of God's Word, and then applying them to our lives as the church today, and how does this all play out for us in, in the way of the church, in the way that we are created to live in this life of transformation. Now, because this is an ancient uh, pilgrimage, spiritual pilgrimage, Catholic spiritual pilgrimage that's been going on for 1,100 years, and just in recent years have some people been doing it for non-spiritual purposes, but for many, many years and for over a, over a, a millennia, it was done for spiritual purposes, so all along the pathway, there are church after church, churches and churches, many churches, hundreds of churches, and what I found that most of these churches had three things in common. One, they were Catholic, primarily because many of them were started before there was only anything but the Catholic Church. There wasn't the Reformation, there was no Baptist and Methodist, whatever. So the Catholic churches, they're old, old churches, and most of them are made out of stone. And we spent a lot of time looking at these churches, visiting these churches. We weren't able, time restraints, we weren't able to visit every church. There were so many of them. But often we would go into a church, and sometimes it was just to seek, a uh, little bit of a pun intended here, a little bit to seek sanctuary from the heat, go into a nice, cool uh, stone building. Sometimes it was to seek sanctuary from a, a cloudburst and a, and a thunderstorm that had just happened. Sometimes it was just for a, a moment of quiet and reflection and prayer. 
There are times we'd go into these churches and we would experience the mass, though we didn't understand it. It was in Spanish. And there was one church that we went to, and it specifically went to this one, because it was all done in Gregorian chant, and I had never been able to experience Gregorian chant, and that was absolutely fascinating. And there were times we would go in these churches, and we would just observe and learn and, and uh, just take them in as a, as a building and the history with them. Now, I don't have time today, nor would you like to see, the picture of all the churches that uh, we saw, visited, and, and encountered. But I do want to point out a few, and I will say this right up front. On the front end of our time together today, I'm going to give you a lot of history. Can you hang with me? Okay. Some church history, some Spanish church history, and some different things with, with that. Um, but I wanted to point out that, that these churches, they're all different sizes, shapes, all different kinds of forms and functions. That Some of them were very, very humble. Here's a humble church. It's just a, a one-room building. Of course, it has a steeple and a bell, which is important. We may talk about that next week. But it was just a, a one-room building, a brick, nothing elaborate at all about this church. But what's amazing is even in these old, simple, humble churches like this, there would still be gatherings of Christ followers who would come together for the sacraments to lift up the name of Jesus, to worship, to, to read his word, to celebrate the Eucharist and that. But that was not the majority of churches. Most of the churches had more than just one room. Some of them had multiple different rooms in, in uh, beautiful churches, and it might have a sanctuary for those kind of things. It might have a rectory for, for the, the priest. It might have a hospital. It might have a monastery. It might have a convent. It might have a college. It might have a guest house. A lot more uh, emphasis of, of ministry outreach for some of these churches, a lot more different rooms. And some of them were just absolutely beautiful and serene. This picture, for instance, the day we were walking along here, and I saw this, and I just thought, wow, look at that. I mean, it just, there was something inside of me that just wanted to run across here with a guitar singing, the hills are alive with the sound of music. I mean, just my inner Julie Andrews was coming out as I saw this picture, just absolutely fascinating. The one I want to spend a little more time on is this one, because not only is this a, a stark contrast with the clouds and such in the picture, but there's also the ruins of this castle, and I want to just talk about this for just a minute. Listen, children, to a story that was written long ago about a kingdom on a mountain and the valley folks below. Okay, that's more lyrics, but never mind. So as I saw this, what was interesting is this castle ruins up on the hill. So after we got settled in where we were staying, uh, my wife and I, Doreen, we hiked up to the top of this hill to these castle ruins. And they date back to the Roman Empire. In fact, some would say Julius Caesar himself is the one who ordered this castle built 2,000 years ago. But over the years, at the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire, and then the, you know, the Moors and the Christians and the, and the Muslims and the Visigoths and all that, it has exchanged different hands of whatever powers that be. And what I found so interesting is this castle that represents the powers, the kingdoms of this world lies in ruins, while down below, the followers of a humble carpenter 2,000 years later are still lifting up his name, still celebrating him, still worshiping him, still looking at his words and following him. And I thought, what a great contrast. You know, in Hebrews, it talks about this kingdom that cannot be shaken, the kingdom of God. In the book of Daniel, it, it talks about how the God of heaven will, will develop a kingdom that cannot be destroyed and all of that. Now, now I've, I know I've quoted a few lyrics. Let me take some of you back to uh, the 70s with Bill Gaither. There we go. Were you there? Bill Gaither wrote this song about the name of Jesus, and there was this line in it that said, kings and kingdoms shall all pass away. 
But there's something about that name. And I just saw this. I thought, this is such a beautiful picture that all the kings and the kingdoms of this world, they'll come and go. But the kingdom of the living king of kings, Jesus Christ, will continue on. Well, that could be a sermon, but it's not. And, and then there were these times where there was just this, this picturesque scene. I mean, we walked into this town, and I thought, like, I'm walking into the cover of a puzzle. This is something you would make a puzzle of. And I thought, I could ruin this puzzle. But I just took this picture. It's so absolutely beautiful. I was like, wow, Dorian, look at this. Let's take a picture. Hashtag iPhone, no filter. Okay, so just absolutely beautiful. And then when we get into some of the larger towns, uh, Lagronio, uh, Burgos, and such, that some of these larger towns would have a cathedral. And cathedral would be a more of a regional thing, and they were usually a, a lot bigger. So in Burgos, this is just the entrance of the cathedral, on, on the front of the cathedral with the sp uh, spires and, and all the different things, the rose window and the stained glass and the archways and such. And then the ultimate goal when you get to Santiago is to be there at the cathedral in Santiago, and there's the big entrance that, you know, with all these bells and statues and carvings and sculptures and all this, and this, again, is just the entrance. And and it was amazing to me as I would go into these, especially cathedrals, but even some of the churches. Now, I would say this. There are some people who say these cathedrals are a reminder of the wealth and the power and even the abuses of the Catholic Church, that they were built on the shoulders of the people that were paying for their sins and all the things that were way wrong with the Catholic Church, and we could get into all that. Could we, for today, not focus on the negative, but could we give the church the benefit of the doubt and see the positive? Because as we would walk into these cathedrals and these massive churches, there was a physiological response that reflected, I think, a spiritual reality. As we would walk into these churches, our eyes would just be drawn up. They would just lift our eyes up in the same way that as we come into God's presence, it is just to, to lift our spirits, and there was no way to have any response except awe and wonder at the majesty and the, to worship in, in this whole thing and to be inspired, to be inspired that, that there's something greater, there's something loftier, there's something more transcendent than just the ordinary everyday life. And I was thinking about when some of these were built, hundreds, thousands of years ago, about the common folks, peasants, who had a very difficult life, eking out a living, one cow maybe, a few chickens and a mule, trying to, to farm the ground and the soil and try to, to just sustain life and, and the hardships of poverty and the harsh winters that were so cold and the dry summers and, and the sickness and losing children to all kinds of diseases and the plague that came through. And life was just difficult. And as they would take these weary pilgrims and come to this place and they would come into this building, that there was something that would just lift their eyes, just lift their spirits, bring about this worship and awe, and inspire them that there is life beyond just the hardships of these days here on this earth. Fanny Crosby, years ago, wrote this song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And I think that in these cathedrals, in these churches, it was this foretaste, this foreshadowing. This is just an appetizer of what we will be able to experience for all of eternity, where it's wonderful, where it's inspiring, where it's, where it's majestic, where it's above, it's transcendent. And that there was a purpose for these churches. And the architecture, it wasn't just about trying to show off how big they were, how powerful they were, how wealthy they were. 
but it had a purpose and an intention behind it. So as I was visiting these and seeing these throughout, I was reminded about some things I learned in college. This was a long time ago. We did have pens and pencils, no computers, but we had pens and pencils. And I remember um, some things about the architecture from a church history class I took, I think, in 1984-ish, 83-84. So here's where I'm going to give you a little bit of church history for free today. You ready? Okay. Are you ready? Okay. Everybody else is already snoozing. That's good. Uh, l- let me uh, just tell you that the intentionality and the purposefulness in the architecture of these churches and cathedrals was amazing. Throughout church history, especially in the Catholic Church, the architecture of the sanctuary of these churches and cathedrals, if you had a bird's eye view, was created in what is referred to as a cruciform. So the, uh, the auditorium or the sanctuary uh, looks this way. If you could go above, it looks like this. In fact, if you've ever been to the Assumption Church here in Bellingham, Skadron, I'm not sure about you, but in, in Bellingham, if you've been to the Assumption Church, the sanctuary is created with this cruciform idea. And this is how it, it works. Here's something else that, that's kind of important. This is always the way it is. Um, that's a little uh, compass rose for those who are not sure. So if you were to look from the top, it was created in the, in the form of a cross. And this area here was called the narthex. Some people always say, well, is it narthex or northex, like the north exit? Well, duh. It's not the narthex. It's the narthex. And originally, this area was built for people who could not come into the sanctuary because they had not repented of sins, they had not gone to confession, they had not been baptized, so they could still experience it without being in there. So for those of you who are watching out in the commons right now, (laughs) we are praying for you. Someday you will be in this room with us, but for now, we're glad that you're here. Now, this section, uh, is referred to as, as the nave, the nave. And, and if this church was, was made in a, in a cruciform, you would be in the nave. The nave comes from the Latin word navis, where we get our word navy. It means boat. And part of the idea is that this would be the boat of the people of God that would hold the people of God through the storms of life. Up to the front, you have uh, the north transept uh, and the south transept. And this whole area in here is called the crossing. The, the front end here is called the apse. Now, here's what's so cool. The church had apse before apse were a thing. All right. So they had the apse up here, and in the apse, that's where you have the chancel. It's where you have the choir very often. You have the altar, those kind of things that happen like this. In this, the main entrance is always on the west, and the main interest is always toward the east. Think about this. If those of you here in Bellingham, the Assumption Church... Cornwall Avenue, the main entrance is at the west. It lays out in this cruciform, and the main interest, interest is toward the east. Why is that? Well, in Matthew 24, Jesus, in talking about his second coming, said, as the lightning flashes in the east and comes to the west, so it will be when the Son of Man returns. So it has always been historically, traditionally believed that when Jesus comes again, he will come from the east, and so this whole thing reflects that. Another little side note, in Christian history, 
Traditionally, when a Christian was buried, they were buried in such a way with their feet to the east, their head to the west, that on that great getting up morning, when they sat up, they would be facing east because that's where Jesus is coming from for them. Now, some of you right now are going, we planted grandma backwards. <laughs> this, is not, this is not a good thing. <laughs> Let me just set your mind at ease. If you planted grandma backwards, on that great getting up morning, if she's facing this one, someone can say, Mildred, he's there. She'll turn around, it's all good, okay? So relax, some of you are like, we gotta go dig her up. No, no, no just, just leave her be, all right. So you've got, you've got all this. Now, uh, another little piece of, of uh, church history, architectural history, and I referenced this a couple weeks ago, that there's the Romanesque type uh, architecture and there's Gothic type architecture. And one of the primary ways you can just spot and tell that right away has to do with their arches. For instance, a Romanesque arch is always going to look like this. Okay? So if you have a, an entryway, your Romanesque arch is going to look like this with these stones. And then this stone right here, anyone know what that's called? The capstone. Capstone or the keystone. That's going to come in later. So this is a Romanesque arch. It's also referred to as a Norman arch. The other one is the Gothic arch, and it would look more like this, okay? And so you can really tell quickly the architecture of if it's, if it's Romanesque or if it's Gothic. So a Romanesque-style church has very thick walls, very few windows, a lower ceiling, and the reason is because of the way that the, the arches were, the barrel roofs of the domes, the walls had to be extremely thick to withstand that much weight of these stones that were holding it all up. As architectural understanding advanced and grew, they began to learn about a ribbed vault uh, ceiling as well as the flying buttresses. We won't get into a lot of architecture, but the flying buttress took all the weight and the pressure off of these walls. So in a Gothic church, the walls can be thinner, the ceilings can be higher, and they don't have to be as dark because you can have a, a, a wall that doesn't have to support all that weight, so you can have all these stained glass windows. So it's a big difference there. So when you go to the church, the cathedral in Lyon, Lyon is a, is a Gothic uh, cathedral. It's referred to as the cathedral without walls because the cathedral in Lyon has less stone and more glass than any other cathedral in Spain. It's referred to as the house of lights because there's so much stained glass. If you took all the stained glass, the area of the stained glass windows is just shy of 20,000 square feet of stained glass. And it's spectacular. It's absolutely amazing. And here's what's also interesting. It is constructed in the traditional manner, and on the north side of the cathedral, which never receives direct sunlight, the north side has images of Old Testament stories, Old Testament prophets, Old Testament patriarchs, all the Old Testament, and the windows are a lot darker, a lot more blues involved, because they had not seen the light, though their prophecies pointed to the light of the world that would come, it was dark. But on the south side that gets the sun, it's the stories and the pictures and the gospel narrative because the light of the world had come into the world. 
So what's amazing about this, the way it's laid out in Spain, is that every morning the sun rises to the east in this big rose window here, this stained glass window. It rises to the, to, from the east. The sun comes across the horizon. And as the sun makes its way across, as it shines through the windows, it tells the gospel stories, the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, and his second coming as the sun sets. Is that cool or what? And look what we built. Shoebox. At least you're not out there. It's absolutely amazing. Fascinating. Well, as I was uh, experiencing all this, there were times when I would go in and, and the, the altar would be these grand, um, boy, almost gaudy uh, representations of gold and all these statues and these images and pictures. And you go through the church and there's sculptures and there's paintings and, and even the choir might have hand-carved chairs with different uh, characters from the Bible throughout. I mean, just the amount of attention to detail and the expense that they went to for this. And there was part of it was like, why, 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 why? And then it became really, really clear to me that these churches as they were built were built before the advent of the printing press and so people didn't have a Bible, and even if the printing press had been invented and there were Bibles, these peasants couldn't afford a Bible, and even if they could afford a Bible, they couldn't read a Bible because they were illiterate. So when they came to church, the building itself became the Bible read to them. They didn't have a phone that read the Bible to them. They had a church building that read the story of the Old Testament prophets and the birth of Christ and his gospel and his second coming. The building itself preached the word to them. It was a fascinating thing as I began to understand that they could finally have the word of God. So when you have a stained glass window, it's not just a, 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 a memory of a Bible story. For them, that was their reading of the Bible story or, or a carving of Jesus uh, being, uh, you know, um, crucified and that that would tell that story and him being brought down from the cross and it would go on and tell the story or this with the, the thieves on the cross and, and the Roman guards and all that. It would just tell this story and the church itself would tell his story, it would express his glory and it would inspire a life of transcendence. Now, you made it through all the history, you okay? So all of that, it was just, it's just very fascinating to me but then to understand this, you have to go way back before even Spanish architecture. You have to go back 3,400 years ago to the book of Exodus when God was bringing his people out of slavery, 400 years of slavery. He was going to have them you know, their own land. He would be their God. They would be uh, his people. And God gives very specific instructions to Moses about what does it mean to be in a covenant relationship with the living God. What does it mean to be God's people, to be his nation? What does it mean that he would be our God and we will be his people? And amongst other things, God says to Moses in Exodus 25, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. This word sanctuary, some of us grew up with that. We think, well, you know, they made a little box and God said, sanctuary much, I've got a place to stay. That has nothing to do with it. Sanctuary comes from the word sanctus, which means holy, we've talked about consecrated, set apart, that it would be this place where God would dwell. So you see this in the Ark of the Covenant, this box, this place, this, this mercy, this beam of seat right in the front where God would dwell, in the Holy of Holies, in the tent of meeting, 
when they were living in the wilderness. And what's interesting is that in the wilderness, the way the tribes of Israel were laid out in the tent of meeting was in a cruciform. It was right in their center, and there were some that were to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. And that he would be right there. And then later, when they got into the promised land, they would go to Shiloh and set up the tabernacle. And for 369 years, the, t- the tabernacle would be in Shiloh until David becomes king, and then he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and sets it up there. And then one day, he's in his palace. It's made of cedar and beautiful things. And he looks out the window, and he sees that the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent He says, how is it that I live in a palace and God lives in a tent? This should not be. We should build a temple. And God says, you're not going to, but your son will. Solomon builds the temple in 966 and spares no expense. Solomon's temple was a thing, a a work of beauty. It would have been a wonder of their world. It would definitely have inspired awe and majesty, the sense of, of transcendence, something far beyond. In 586, it's destroyed with the Babylonian exile. Ezra comes back, rebuilds the temple. Everyone cries because it's not nearly as cool as the first one. Herod rebuilds his temple, and it's destroyed in 70. There's your history on that part. But in all of this, the Ark of the Covenant, the Tent of Meeting, the Tabernacle, and the Temple, all of it was a place for God's dwelling. And God's dwelling in their midst told a story told a story of his commitment to them, told a story of his covenant with them, told a story of his redemption for them. It also expressed his glory, and it inspired them to a life of transcendence. There's a time we read about it in 1 Kings. It says, uh, when the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priest could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. This, this cloud was the, the Shekinah glory is, is the word. It's the, the glory of the presence of God. And when you begin to see all this, you begin to see all this, it then begs the question, why is it then that we're not constructing these incredible cathedrals that would cause people to just lift up their eyes? Why is it that we don't have these buildings and these church buildings that would, that would tell the story with the sun going across in the stained glass? Why is it that we don't have something that would express his glory and inspire transcendence? Well, there's a few reasons. One, I think today, we don't have the patience for it. Some of these cathedrals would take decades, even 100 years or better, to build. We want it done by next spring. We don't have the patience. Second one is, who's going to pay for it? Let's just be honest. You say, you know what, I kind of like our building. There's no windows, but it's free. All right, good, it's paid for. Here's the primary reason. The primary reason why we don't put so much emphasis on this building is that God has changed the building. God has changed the building. Again, some of us grew up in church. When we went to church, we were told we were in the house of God. We were in God's house. Someone would get up for the invocation. We didn't even know what that meant, but it was the first guy that got up there. And in the invocation, he would say, today we come into the house of the Lord and all of this. Listen, if you think that God lives in a house, you've missed it by an entire testament. You're widened to the left. You ought to kick for the Seahawks. All right, you've missed it completely. When Paul is talking to uh, the followers, uh, no, not the followers, the people of Athens. He's in Athens, Greece. Athens is a place of incredible temples and uh, idols and Greek gods and goddesses. There in Athens, at the, on the Acropolis, is, is the Parthenon, this enormous temple dedicated to the goddess Athena. 
just down the hill from that, in the shadow of this immense temple where their goddess Athena is, he's in the Areopagus. It's this place where people would gather, and they would just talk, and they would philosophize and talk about new ideas and quote lyrics and those kind of things. They would do all that. Paul comes into this this brain trust area with these guys, and he says this, which is profound to them, and we can never lose sight of this. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. God doesn't live in a tent anymore. He doesn't live in a tabernacle anymore. He doesn't live in a temple made by hands anymore. Jesus is dying on the cross He is paying for my sin. He's paying for your sin. He's paying for the sins of the world. And as he gets to the point in that that substitution has been taken care of and the price has been paid, he says, it is finished. He breathes out his last. And the veil that separates the Holy of Holies in the temple is torn from top to bottom. And as a public service announcement saying, God has left the building. He doesn't live here anymore. It's not about a building. There was a time when Jesus is with his disciples, clear up in the north in Caesarea Philippi. And he asked them this question, who do people say that I am? And then he asked the question that every single one of us has to come to a place in our minds and our hearts that we would answer. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you know, you're, you're, the, you're the son of God, you're the Messiah. And Jesus' response to him is this, I tell you that you are Peter. Simon, up to this point, changed his name to Petros, Peter. You are Peter, this rock. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And people for years have have argued about, what is the rock Peter? I mean, he was the first pope of the church. Is that the deal? Or is the rock the statement that he made about who Christ is and the Messiah? Either way, Jesus said, I will build my church. And at that point, he starts building a new church, He starts building a new sanctuary. He starts building a new temple. And in this new temple, this new sanctuary, this new church, this would be a place that would tell his story, express his glory, and inspire a life of transcendence. Now, before we get into that temple, there's an Old Testament prophecy found in Psalm 118, and it says this. The stone the builders rejected has become, hmm, the capstone. You take the capstone out, the whole thing crumbles. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And what we see here as Jesus is talking about this is that Jesus designed, began, is building, and dwells in this temple. Jesus does that. He he designed it. He's the architect. He drew up the plans. He began it. He's the general contractor. He continues on. He's all the subs. He's the owner, and he's the occupant of this new temple. So he says this this stone, this capstone, this stone that the builders rejected has become this capstone that holds it all together. Now, what's interesting is that verse in Psalm 118 is quoted four times in the New Testament. And who quotes it is very interesting as well. Twice, it's quoted by Peter, who Jesus said, and on this rock I will build Petros, Petra, the rock. And Peter's saying, hey, wait, let's just be really clear. It's not me. It's the stone the builders rejected. Jesus has become the capstone. Jesus himself quotes it about himself. Jesus said this. Have you never read in the scriptures 
The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes that Jesus is putting together this brand new temple. And this temple would cause Solomon's temple to pale in comparison. Ezra's temple doesn't even come into the plain. Even Herod's temple, even, the, even the, the, the cathedrals in Santiago and all over Spain, he said, this temple is far more majestic. It's far more beautiful. It is far more inspiring. This, this temple tells my story. It expresses my glory. And it inspires a life of transcendence. And here's the thing that is hard to get our minds wrapped around. This temple that Jesus is building, the temple is us. It's us. We are that temple. And he says, my followers, my people, they are the ones who will tell my story. They will be the greatest expression of my glory. And the way they live their lives and allow me to live through them will inspire a life that goes beyond our days here on this earth. So Paul, again in Greece, this time with the church in Corinth, and Corinth, again, was a very, very corrupt city. A lot of idolatry, a lot of temples, a lot of immorality. And Paul has planted a church there, and the church is just fraught with issues. So he writes them some letters. We have two of them. We know that he wrote four of them, but at least four, but he has, we have two of them. In one of these letters... He addresses this very issue in the second letter to, to the Corinthians. He says, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Okay, he's talking their language. They have temples to every god and goddess you can imagine, and there's idols everywhere. And he says, okay, but, but what agreement is there between the temple of God, the one true living God, and idols? And then he says, for we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them. Does that sound like Exodus 25? Build me a sanctuary so I will dwell with them. I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. He says, we're the temple. Collectively, the church, that's us. This is the dwelling place of God. This is where his story is told. This is where his glory is is revealed. This is where this life is inspired to be beyond just our days here on this earth. This is how we are to operate, that God dwells within us. In his first letter to them, um, in chapter 6, he talks about us personally, our body is the temple of, of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to get into that just yet. But he's talking to them again as the church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he writes these words, don't you know that you yourselves, plural, together, you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you. I think this is really important. You remember Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. He says, there's something that happens. Some people say, well, I don't need the church. I don't need to be with the body of Christ to love Jesus. Granted, but there's something about the gathering of God's people where Jesus is in the midst. And he says, you've got to understand how seriously God takes this new temple, this thing called the church, And he goes on and he says this, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, holy, consecrated, sanctus, set apart, and you are that temple. Look at this. I'm not trying to be heretical here, but in the Old Testament, that which was most holy, that which was most sacred, 
That which was the dwelling place of God was the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And what he is saying is, now the Spirit lives within you, and this gathering is sacred that we, as the followers of Jesus, have become the Holy of Holies. Not because of anything we've done, but because of the one who dwells in our midst and in our presence. That we, the church, this is where God dwells now. This is what tells his story, expresses his glory, and inspires a life of transcendence. And then he makes it even more personal. Because it's not just collectively as a temple, and that's the, the, the truth, but each one of us as individuals, individuals, we, we are like individual stones in this temple. Which, and, and again, forgive me for this, but I, as I was putting this together, I thought about that phrase, he's as dumb as a bag of rocks. And if the church is a bag of rocks, well, so be it. But what's amazing is that each one of us are a stone in this temple that is being built where God dwells. You know, when a, a, an architect or a, a builder would come in and be commissioned with building a church or a cathedral, the first thing he would do is to survey the land and find out what materials do I have to work with? What kind of rock? What kind of stone? How far is the quarry? What do I have to work with? in these stones. And what does God have to work with? Us, stones. So Peter, again, the rock, writes these words. As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, the capstone, you know, the cornerstone, the chief keystone, if you come to the living stone, who, by the way, and he's quoting Psalm 118, who was rejected by man, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, and look at this, small case uh, S, like living stones. You're, like, you're not Jesus, but you're like him in that, maybe, you've been rejected by man, but you have been chosen by God, and you are precious to him. Like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That we, we, no matter who we are, no matter what man says, God says, I have chosen you. You are precious to me. You're a part of this household that I am building. And you are a part of the priesthood to do the service of God and to give him the glory and to bring these sacrifices that are acceptable, not because of who you are, but because of who Jesus is. It's an amazing thing when I begin to, humbling thing, when I begin to think that Jesus has chosen me, that I'm precious to God, and he says, I want to use you as a stone in building this temple for my glory, this temple that expresses my glory and tells my story and inspires others to a life beyond just our days here on this earth. We're thinking about this cathedral in, in Santiago. On the west entrance, in the front, is a thing called the Portico de Gloria. It's the door of glory. And there's a man named Maestro Matteo, Master Matthew. And he was one of the greatest sculptors of the day. And he was commissioned with creating the entrance into this place that would bring about worship and tell the story of Jesus. And he begins to, to create this portico, this door, this entrance in. Not the big spires and steeples out front, not the stained glass one, not all, 
just the entrance of the door. And it took him 22 years to sculpt just the entrance. And it's considered one of the, one of the greatest uh, sculptures of all Spanish history, one of the greatest uh, artworks of the medieval period. This portico, but it took him 22 years. And as I was thinking about that, that here's this master sculptor who for 22 years painstakingly makes this beautiful entrance. That we have Jesus who for 2,000 years has been building, sculpting, designing, putting together this incredible temple to God. And that you and I, in this season, in this day, you and I are part of this ongoing project. It's the present and perpetual project that Jesus has been doing since the day he said, I will build my church. And it's not going to be a church made by human hands. It's going to be one that I put together. And my church will be far more glorious. And I'm going to use ordinary stones and make them an absolute masterpiece. And Jesus wants to take us as living stones. You know the problem with a living stone? So a living stone can roll away and be a rolling stone. You know, Jesus says, I want to use you, and you just say, rocks and gravel, let's travel. I'm out of here. <laughs> Jesus wants to sculpt you. He hits you with the chisel. You go, ouch, I don't want to do that anymore. This is no fun. But what about a stone that is completely surrendered and submitted to saying, Jesus, I want to be used for your purposes. I want to be transformed into your beautiful work of art. I want to be a part of your growing temple. And I want my life to tell your story and express your glory and inspire, inspire others to a life of transcendence. One more scripture and then a thought and I'll close. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Not just members like part of the family, but like members of the house itself. Living stones. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This isn't a Cornwall thing. This is the church of Jesus Christ that goes back to the prophets and the apostles and Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. He's the capstone that holds it all together. He's the cornerstone that starts it all. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling which God lives by his spirit. We are the temple of the living God. And as a church together, may our lives and what God does in and through us be something that tells his story and expresses his glory. And for a world that's watching that may not even believe, it would inspire them that there's something more than just this life. And as individual living stones, if we would submit ourselves and surrender and say, Jesus, you are the master sculptor. You who began a good work in me, carry it on to completion. Matteo took 22 years, you take the rest of my life. Michelangelo, the greatest sculptor of all time, said, I see an angel in a block of marble and I chip away until I set him free. To say, Jesus, you see in me something I don't even see in myself. All I see is this dirty old nasty rock with these rough edges. I submit myself to you. Would you make your beautiful masterpiece out of me and would my life be a life that tells your story and expresses your glory and inspires 
a life of transcendence. See, I don't care what kind of rock or stone you are, what you've done, all your history, your past, your rough edges, the stuff that's yet to be redeemed. Jesus said, I have chosen you even if you've been rejected and you are precious to me. And what I see in you is a beautiful masterpiece to bring glory to our God.